worked, obviously everyone else really worked hard, but Julianne had to do a lot with all the COVID going on to make this happen. So thank you, Julianne, so much. So I'm Sean Mutashimi. Um, I've been practicing dentistry for over 23 years. Uh, sounds like it was yesterday, but I've been through all phases of dentistry probably about 15 years ago or so when I fell in love with uh, implant dentistry. And the, the way I got into implant dentistry, I was a big time cosmetic uh, restorative dentist doing full arches in restorative, you know, neuromuscular veneers. Uh, when the first crisis hit back in 2006-ish, I practiced in Vegas and that's when everything went down. I had valet guys, uh, strippers. I had all kinds of people coming to me with cash. And then when the uh, economy went down, we just, all of that stopped. So I had to figure a way to get back into the market and do well. And I got into implant dentistry. I'll give you more details of my experience, but the three days we have here for you is more than just teaching you how to do a procedure. My vision is to really help you transform your practices, uh, be able to go back home, be excited to make some changes in your, your practices. And it's gonna be a success story more than just learning a procedure. Um, so that's, that's about, let's get started. Um, we didn't miss anybody, no? Right. So it's not what you do that determines your success. It's how you do it. You Let me say that one more time. It's not what you do that determines your success. It's how you do it. I don't care if you're a dentist, doctor, MD, a lawyer, uh, implant rep. It, that does not determine whether you're successful or not. It's if you're passionate about what you do, if you want to exceed in, in what you do and learn more and become better on a daily basis. That's what determines your success, at least to me. Um, and that's how I've really been practicing dentistry for years. And we're hoping, I'm hoping that in the next three days, we can really help you do three things. Number one is how to change patients' lives forever. I mean, this, you're gonna see so many of these cases, countless between me and Dr. Al-Masri. And I know you all think that you've probably done veneer cases or restorative cases to where you've really improved someone's life. And you have, and I have too. But this is on a different level. These are patients that have lost hope. These are patients that have been turned down by so many other dentists simply because they don't know what to do for these patients. I mean, the best they could do is possibly give them a set of dentures, but these patients don't want dentures. They're young, they're active, and so on. Um, the second thing is how to do dentistry at its best. I mean, we have so many patients that are unhealthy out there with gum disease and so on. And in a matter of one day, we can go from you know, all that unhealthiness to this, which is healthy, functional, beautiful. And the third thing, which is not, uh, last but not least, is to how to make dentistry extremely profitable. This is a personal experience. I mean, my practice back in whenever, before I started the full arches, was doing 1.7 a year. And within a matter of a year or two of incorporating the full arch treatment, I jumped to 4 million. There's no other procedure that could do that for you. 
So you're going to also get, I'm going to, I will also share a lot of numbers with you, my personal experience. Like I said, I want this to be a success story for you guys so every one of you can do the same. Um, we're going to start the morning from basic. Now, you're going to hear me say all on X, Neo Arch. Once in a while, I might say all on <coughs> 4, which Greg may not like. But to be honest with you, it's all the same. The procedure is the same. The, the, the results are the same. There's no difference. We just may, you may hear me use different names, so don't get confused. The implants are the same. They're different, not the same, which we'll talk about that later and why Neodent is my favorite, my personal favorite. So we'll get into that detail later. But this morning, we're going to talk about what Neo Arch implant solution is, the principle of the Neo Arch, the advantages, and why it's in such a demand these days. And that's why I'm willing to teach you all because there is no competition out there. Um, all right, so what is, my clicker is a little slow. So what is the new arch? Um, it's a graphless solution for full arch immediate function. There's three important words here. It's graphless, meaning that there's no sinus lift needed. There's no second stage bone grafting needed or stage bone grafting. There's no um, bone uh, ridge augmentation needed. None of that is needed. It's for full arch, obviously. So we're restoring a full arch, upper, lower, or full mouth. Uh, and it's for immediate function, meaning that patient gets to go home same day with fixed functional teeth or prosthesis. All that is done uh, in the new arch. Um, Four implants in a dentalist jaw that provides that secure and optimal support for the implant bridge. It's achievable even with minimal bone available. That's the key. And how do we achieve that? Basically by placing the posterior implants in an angle, tilted implants at the maximum of 45 degree angle. So that results in so many advantages when you place the posterior implants in an angle. So there are two anterior implants that are most of the times straight up and down, but sometimes we also tilt those as well. But there's the, ma the majority of the benefit comes from those posterior implants that are tilted. What are those basically benefits? Let's go over those real quick. Number one, those tilted implants help to uh, avoid some relevant anatomical structure, which we're talking about sinus and mental foramen and those things. Number two, having those tilted implants, it allows you to get a nice anchor from the anterior bone while the implant head is more posterior. As you all know, as we go further in the jaw, further, further back in the mouth posterior, the bone gets weaker and softer. So being able to place those implants tilted. We're using the better bone, anterior better bone, but yet we have a good AP anterior posterior spread. Um, improves, uh, it helps to improve the support of the prosthesis by reducing the cantilever. Again, by tilting those implants back posteriorly, that reduces the cantilever, which helps in the success and long term of your prosthesis. 
Uh, it obviously reduces in the need for uh, bone grafting because we're not doing sinus lift. We're skipping the sinus. And a lot of those lower jaw that you've probably seen where there's a lot of atrophy in the, in the posterior, we don't need to deal with that. So it reduces that bone grafting. Now, you might say, or you might know that we've been doing tilted implants for a long time. It's nothing new, right? But what really changed this whole game of new arch or all on X and being able to uh, give patients teeth in the same day, for me, was the multi-unit abutment that came along. Uh, so being uh, placing implants in, in a posterior tilted, that's kind of been done, you know. But being able to create a path of insertion with those multi-units, which they come in straight, 17, 30, and now 45, and we'll get into those later, but being able to do that, it allows all the implants to be in the same path of insertion, which in return creates a very passive prosthesis that goes in nicely without any pressure on the implants. Uh, it, it, it works great. So for me, that's really what changed the whole game. Um, all right, so what are some of the principles? Let's go over this one more time kind of before we get into the real stuff. Um, so the new art solution improves the implant distribution using the longer tilted implants. How is that? By being able to increase the bone to implant contact. So when you have this longer implant, now your bone to implant contact has increased. It also increases the anterior posterior spread, which in results gives you a smaller cantilever. Again, those four implants, whether it's mandible or maxilla, skipping the upper sinus and lower mental foramen, uh, we're able to achieve very good stability. A lot of times we engage those implants in the bacillar bone or the floor of the sinus because that's where you have the more dense bone. Um, and then at the end, it gives you an optimal prosthetic support for whether it's a uh, provisional prosthesis or for various final restorations. All right, this is one of my favorite uh, slides because I get to get you really excited here. So a patient comes to us, right? Whether they're edentulous or they're gonna become edentulous, what are your choices? All right, besides obviously a set of dentures. Your number one choice, which you, I heard a lot of you saying that you have done this is to do either a snap-on denture, you want to call it over-denture, you want to call it FP4, doesn't matter what you call it, but it is removable, right? Is that, the, is that a good option? Yes, definitely, it's a good option compared to dentures, but is that the best option? Is that what you would want in your mouth? No, I wouldn't want that in my mouth, I wouldn't want it in my mom or dad's mouth. So do I do these cases? Yes, there are cases where, whether it's financial or for other reasons, uh, we end up doing a, maybe a couple of these a month. Your second option would be to do the traditional implant-supported bridge, or what we call FP1. That's when you place six implants possibly or more. You can do either a roundhouse or sectional bridges or single units, all the same. Is that a good option? Absolutely, that's a great option. 
I would take that any day. And there are offices that only focus on this, right? But when you talk to them, how many of those cases do you do? They say, oh, maybe one, maybe two a month. Why? There are a lot of reasons. Price range, long-term, or, or number of appointments, the fact that it takes so long. The, the, the talent that it takes to uh, provide a good successful case with this is a lot higher than doing other cases, other type of procedures. So for many reasons, this is not an ideal procedure for me. Now, you may think, well, you want to do the best thing for the patient. You want to learn how to do the best thing, which more power to you. I'm not taking that away. But has anyone read the book, uh, Swimming with the Sharks? No? Okay. If you get a chance, read it. I read this book about 12 years ago or so, and it was probably eye-opening for me. This book talks about businesses and how to succeed uh, in a world where there's a lot of competition. They talk about a few companies. One of those companies, for example, is Southwest Airlines. Does anyone know why Southwest came into the market when there's so many other airline companies? I mean, the competition was crazy. How did they get into that market and become so successful? Or why did they even attempt coming up? I'll tell you why. This is the eye-opening part. They did not come into the market to compete with the other doctor or with the other uh, airline companies. They came into the market thinking, how can we attract those people that do not want to fly? Those people that rather drive to Las Vegas than fly. So why do those people do not want to fly? Number one, too expensive. Number two, too complicated. Number three, they don't get refunds if, if they buy a ticket and they don't want to you know, use it. Their money is kind of gone. You know, the simplicity of calling and someone getting on the phone, right? There are so many reasons why people didn't want to fly, right? They said, how can we change that and grab those people that are, that are driving? So that was their thought process of coming into the market. And they were successful. And in return, not only they got people to fly, those who were driving, but they also got the, the business of all the other airlines because of it. Do you get my point? So is the second option here is a bad option, FP1? No. But do you have a lot of people that want to do that? No, you will not. You can, I guarantee you, for every 20 that wants to do this, maybe one wants to do that. So you're losing on 20 cases to get one. The other company, for example, they talk about in that book is uh, Starbucks. Again, Starbucks didn't come into the market thinking that I'm gonna go close all the other uh, coffee shops because I'm gonna be so successful. They're like, they were thinking, what can we do to get those people that drink coffee at home or make coffee at home to come to us? What can we do for those tea drinkers to come to us. You get it? And then, obviously, because they were so successful, they took over the whole market. So, I'm trying to teach you something because there is a big, big population out there that does not want those things. 
and we're not trying to steal those guys. Let the other dentists have those, okay? We're gonna focus on these patients that want these, and there's plenty of them out there. Why? It's quick, affordable, teeth in the same day, aesthetically best possibility of all of these. I mean, you have it all in one package. So like you said there, I forgot your name, I'm sorry. George? Gerard. Gerard, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, you don't wanna miss the train. This is the train going by, you better jump on it because there's more than 60, 60 million Americans that need this procedure and there's just simply not enough of us doing it. So if that didn't get you excited, I don't know what will. All right, so let's, let's get started pretty much going through this. Uh, I'm gonna kind of build it up. I'm gonna act like we don't know anything and kind of build up our way up. So uh, the advantages, this procedure is very efficient because we know we, have, we want four implants. We know pretty much what sizes we want. We know pretty much where they're gonna go. Once you start doing this, right now, it's more efficient for me and my team to do this procedure versus doing a crown prep, honestly. Right, Dr. Athena? <laughs> she knows it because when we're doing these procedures, everybody's on it, everybody knows exactly what happens, and then we'll have a crown prep, everybody's lost. Okay, what do we do, what do I get now? <laughs> so, it's very efficient. Uh, it reduces the, obviously, we talked about this, reduces the need for stage bone grafting, which also is part of the efficiency, part of the time, part of saving money. It's extremely aesthetic and uh, has a great functional outcome. There is absolutely no other procedure that you could tell me you can do this for this patient to have this result. If you do anybody, please let me know because I would like to know that. Um, hygienically amazing. I mean, how many of these patients do you have in your practice or you've seen that has these huge pockets all around? You know, you have whatever 30, uh, 28 or 30 teeth that are sitting around. Each one of them has circumferential eight millimeter pocket depths. How healthy can you get this patient? You know, I've met so many of them and maybe you have two as a periodontist that go through the periosurgery, one quad, two quad, they stop. They don't want to do it anymore because of pain and the discomfort and then the end result, you've got these long rooted teeth, they have to keep pub. If someone hasn't done this for 50 years, are you really think they're gonna now get with it and get healthy? And then once you remove those teeth and you put this in, all of a sudden their energy level changes. You really took the infection away completely. Again, I'm not talking about cases where patients want to be healthy. I'm not taking that away from you, so I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm talking about these patients that are just out there looking for a solution and the quad surgery and all these things is not a solution for them. They're not looking for that. So, and uh, reduces the, 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 one of the other advantages is reduces the cost for the patient and for the doctor. You may think, if you haven't done these, you may think twenty dollars to $25,000 per arch is a lot of money. But it is really not for what they're getting. Now there is a price point 
when you go to 35 to 40,000 per arch, which would be a cost of possibly doing six and eight implants and doing the traditional uh, implant supported bridge, when you go to 35 to 40, that's a little over the budget for them. I, mean, I personally don't know what it is, but there is a reason why um, most patients can afford a 20,000, not patients, most people can afford a $20,000 car, but they cannot afford a $50,000 car. There is a price range where people get approved and comfortable payments, I mean, all those things goes together. And twenty dollars to $25,000 per arch is a lot more doable for patients. As soon as you go into the thirty-five to forty, dollars it's like you lost them. You just can't afford it. So that's another advantage that this procedure can be so successful. Are you guys with me so far? I'm trying to get you all excited so when you, we get to the... All right, and the last but not least is obviously high profit for the professional. When you do these quick in one day, when you don't have to do stage bone grafting, when you only place four implants, I mean, there's so many things that can make it uh, much more profitable for you. Obviously, I only have one of these, but Dr. Masri has all of these. <laughs> all right, we're gonna have some fun here too. Um, all right, uh, and then at the end, but not least, it's a simplified surgical and prosthetic procedure. Because it's so efficient, because you get to do the same thing over and over, it really becomes easier for an average dentist, and I'm not saying you guys are average, you guys are all above average, but for an average dentist to be able to do this and make it successful. Versus the other one is just more, a lot more technique sensitive and every case is different. You can't copy the same thing. All right, good. Oh. My, can you uh, increase the, uh, the speed of my clicks? I'm, I feel like I'm one step behind. Um, some of the obstacles that's, that's removed by this procedure with the new arch, uh, patients actually nowadays come to me asking for this procedure. I'm sure it's the same for you, Doc. Why is that? Because now they're starting to hear about it. They see commercials. They uh, you know, I love um, Clear Choice because they are raising the awareness of these patients, right? That 60 million Americans that didn't know about this procedure are now starting to hear it. It's good for all of us. I want all of you to go advertise out there so I get more patients, <laughs> right? So, um, and it's an immediate gratification and improved comfort. Again, how can you go from here to here in one visit with any other procedure? I mean, even if those teeth were healthy, let's say, in order to fix that, you gotta do a, uh, the max, uh, what's it called? I just forgot the name, the uh, Lefford one or two, is it called? I just forgot. But you know what I'm talking about, the maxillectomy where they have to cut and move the maxilla up. Um, on top of that, then you gotta, I don't even know how, what I would do for this patient if, if this procedure wasn't available. I honestly wouldn't know. I'm a, uh, I would be speechless. I would probably just refer her out, right? Go see the oral surgeon, see what she can do for you or he can do for you. That's what you're gonna find is so many of these cases where you're just used to 
not know what to do, and in results, you end up just referring him out, right? Because you're confused. What am I going to do? Um, I mean, the facial aesthetics, that I can also change. We change class threes to class one or major class two, somewhat correct that. You know, gummy smile to perfect smile. Again, there's just so much that gets done. Fewer appointments. Obviously, we talked about the efficiency. Uh, that, I think, is the biggest uh, advantage that I use for patients that accept treatment. Telling them that this is all done in one day. And they all say, one day? Yes, all done in one day. You're going to walk in looking like that. You're going to leave looking like this. And this is her first set of teeth, by the way. Obviously, the photo was taken a couple weeks later once you know, she comes back for her post-op. But this is her first set of teeth. Literally, that's what she went home with. And I think we did this case with you, Alicia, right? back in uh, a few years ago. So uh, it's a great, great practice building opportunity. I mean, patients, when they go through this, they go tell other people their, their whole life changed in one day. And obviously, it's a state-of-the-art uh, procedure that benefits such a, such a large patient population. So you might say, OK, um, what does the research show? And I'm not much of a uh, statistic type of guy. Maybe Dr. Almasi maybe do a little more of that. But I just want to show you this one before we get started into the real procedure that they did. and. Uh, and just real quick, Dr. Javed B, his name is up here, and he used to be teaching this course with me. He passed, uh, most of you know, a few months ago, and his picture up here. By the way, we dedicated this room to Dr. Javed, so uh, I'm sorry. That was just one of those moments. Uh, he was a good friend. Uh, so anyway, I have this up here because of Dr. Javed's name. and. Um, <clears throat> so all on four, they did a study back in, uh, I think it was 2002, where they had 1,110 implants placed in 270 jaws. Now, they did this all on the upper jaw because you get most of your failure when you do on an upper jaw anyway, right? You, if you've done an implant dentistry, you know why. We don't need to get into it. So they did this on an upper jaw, all on upper jaw. And not get into the details of this, but they track these uh, all on fours for, yeah. I don't know what I did here. Sorry. Uh, they studied these all on fours for up to 16 months, and they had 97.48 success rate. Is that any different than single implant dentistry? I don't think so. I mean, it's just about right there. My personal success rate is actually a little lower than that. We're about 95%. And the only reason is, I'm going to show you failures as well, but my only reason is because I take everybody. I don't say no to anyone. You're diabetic, you're a smoker, you know, you have all these health issues. We still take it and we still do it. So that actually increases our failure rate a little bit. But these guys did it on healthy patients, obviously. Um, and they had... 97.48 success. That's pretty damn good. So it does work, I guess, 
is what I'm trying to show you. All right, so a patient again comes to me uh, with, who is edentulous or about to become uh, edentulous. What is my thought process? I have two types of uh, defects or two types of group of patients. I categorize them. The first one I call a tooth-only defect. This is a patient who, even if they're edentulous, they've only lost their teeth. They still have the good amount of bone or right, you know, exact amount of bone. They haven't lost any gums. That's the patient that if you were to make a denture for, you would only be able to put teeth in there, right? If you had any acrylic or any flange, that denture is gonna stick out and it's not gonna, I'm, I'm sure we've all come across a few of those, right? We tried to make this denture, it just doesn't go anywhere. It's sitting there and sticking out. That's because that's a tooth only defect. They've only lost their teeth, not bone, not tissue. The second category that I look at or I think about is a composite defect. This is a patient who's lost teeth, gums, and bone, right? which you can actually make a proper denture. And if you do make that denture, it's going to have some pink acrylic. So those are my two categories. What do I do with a patient who is tooth only defect? I do give them two choices or I think of two choices. And those choices are number one, the traditional implant supported bridge or the neo arch or all on X. I probably discuss that with the patient to see what her wants and needs are and then make a decision from there. But if I have a patient who is a composite defect, in my practice, I only give him one choice and that's the new arch or all on X because I don't want to go, have, go back and do sinus lift and augmentation and weight and you know, do all that and at the end of it, I'm gonna end up still having those long crowns and just doesn't look right. So this is how I would do it. I am always trying to keep things simple. I don't want to confuse myself. I don't want to confuse the patient. And I do not want to confuse my team, right? So if, if you agree with this, stick with this, you see a patient, you decide right away, is it a tooth comp uh, only defect or a composite defect? Composite defect, I go into new arch, tooth defect, I give them a few choices. So Dr. Bedrosian, who is also a pretty uh, knowledgeable guy, he came up with the idea of uh, zoning the maxilla. And then after I do that first initial defect of tooth or composite, then I start looking at this right away at the panel. So he divided the anterior zone from K9 to K9. Zone two, which is just the bicuspids, and then zone three, which is the molars. You look at the panel and you decide if this patient has enough zone one, enough or maybe a little bit of zone two, no zone three or slightly zone three. That's where I also look at and decide on what choices and what options and where my implants kind of going to fall into, which you'll see as we go how that works. So this, 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 and this is how, obviously I don't draw this red mark on my cases, but this is what my brain is looking at, right? Looking at zone one, how much bone do I have? Zone two, and then zone three, which helps me to understand where those 
tilted posterior implants are going to fall into. Can you all understand, kind of see what I'm looking at or where my thought process is? Now, if a patient has presence of zone one, presence or limited zone two or limited zone three, you have really, if you wanted to give them those two choices of how to restore or how to do this, Option one would be you have to do a sinus lift and do a transitional denture perhaps, right? Because if you're doing a sinus lift, you can't load the, the, the implants right away. Or option two would be the tilted concept, concept, all on X and immediate load, which I always pick choice two every time. And you probably will soon once you get to uh, understand this process. So now I've decided, uh, looked at the x-ray, seen the patient, that we're going to move forward with the new arch or the all on x. Now there are some key restorative diagnostic, de diagnostic determinants that I look at. There's four of them. I'm going to go through these four with you, uh, and then we'll go over it again. So everything that I'm talking about, we're going to go over it at least multiple times. So the surgical procedures, there's so many, by the end of tomorrow, you're gonna see this process so many times, and we talk about it so many times, it's gonna become all clear. So initially, we're just kind of going through the steps. Uh, so presence or absence of composite defect, I look at that, do I need to, uh, is there, amount of, uh, I kind of evaluate from the x-ray or whatnot, the amount of heart tissue and soft tissue remaining or what's missing, and then presence of zone one, zone two, zone three, which we kind of talked about right now. These are just, just part of my diagnostic um, uh, kind of treatment planning as I'm doing it. The second thing that I look at is the transitional zone. Now, transitional zone is where the prosthesis and the ridge of the patient meet. That's very important to be able to visualize that. You know, if you send the patient to an oral surgeon to do the surgery and he doesn't understand this part, he's gonna give you a patient back later and then you're gonna to have to deal with the problems. So the transitional zone is really important, especially in the maxilla. Uh, maxillary and mandible tooth gingival display at rest and full animation. So I wanna be able to see when that patient smiles big where that lip line falls because that's where my transitional zone is going to be and I need to be obviously above or below that on a lower. You follow me? If I don't estimate it, if I can't see that transitional zone later on, we're gonna have restorative issue, we're gonna have cosmetic issue Again, we'll see more of that later. Uh, if the patient is edentulous, I have them give me the biggest smile possible, the cheesiest smile, so I can see if there's a, there's a ridge visible when they smile. If there's a ridge visible, obviously, we're gonna have to take that up above that smile line because of that transitional zone. Third thing, which transitional zone and this next one, which is the inner arch space, they kind of go hand in hand, and you'll see why. So the inner arch space is uh, what you need. 
the space you need for proper restorative material you can use, whatever it is, it's from the incisal edge to the head of the implant or the neck of the implant. That space is called the inner arch space. Your inner arch space in a single implant is kind of similar. You obviously need certain space from that occlusal plane to that implant. So it's the same idea. You prep a crown, right? You need a two millimeter space between the occlusion to that prep so you have enough material for a proper and functional and strong crown. So it's the same idea here. That's what the inner arch space is. Yes? Yeah, so I ch there's a few things that I changed on my slide and they may not be there. So I'll talk about why 15 to 17. Um, I just wanted to pick a number. So I used to say 15, between 15 to 17. And I realized after kind of mentoring some of the doctors is everybody goes on the 15 side. They always, one of your challenges initially is gonna be you wanna be conservative, right? You wanna do as little as possible, just like when you first prepped a crown. What did you do? You under-prepped, probably. So I'd rather be on the 17 on the higher side and kind of stick to that. I would love to see somewhere between 17 to 20 millimeter actual reduction because it's gonna save you a lot of headache later. So even if your book says 15 to 17, stick to 17. So that's what that inner arch space is. Now, why is it that important to understand the transitional zone and the inner arch space together. Yes? No worries. Platform of the implant. So that 17 is giving you space for the multi-unit, for the pink and the tooth and all of that. And you'll see a picture in a minute. Um, so it's important, the inner arch space between transitional zone and the inner arch space because Let's say you do 17 millimeter, but that still falls under the lip line. So even though you have enough reduction, now the transitional zone is in trouble. So therefore you really need to look at these two together and you'll see plenty of that. Um, so you also wanna make sure that we have enough adequate bone after reducing. So, and the last thing, Number four is occlusion. We want to evaluate the occlusion, see what's the opposing, or if we're doing a full mouth, how do we want to restore, and so on. Yes? Adequate, what does it mean? What's the minimum that you need? The minimum? Yeah. 15. Amount of bone? So, the, the oh, oh, the minimum you need for your surgery. Yeah. Okay, so that's something we'll get into. Uh, there's different ways. I mean, I personally, I don't think there's an ideal number. I personally don't want less than 10. But then there's ways to get around that as well. So the re research or statistics has shown that implant, as long as you have eight millimeter, anything above that doesn't really do much when it comes to forces. But my experience with all on, <coughs> all on X, <laughs> uh, I caught myself there. Uh, has been that it, it's the, almost the opposite. When I learned how to do single implant dentistry, it was the wider the implant, the better. In this procedure for me, the longer the implant, the better. I wanna have a lot of bone around my implant. So I do use 3.5s a lot in the anteriors. 
pretty much all my upper, lower, and tiers are 3.5. And then you'll see later that, let's say if you only have eight to 10 millimeter in the anterior, you can also tilt your anterior ones and get a longer implant in there, which I do all the time. So there's so many ways to get what you want. Yeah, uh, for me, longer is better than uh, wider in, this, in, in these cases. And then obviously we're talking about occlusion, you know, favorable, you wanna evaluate that. Does patient have a full opposing? If you're doing only one arch, if they only have their front six teeth, you wanna consider something for the back on the lower to create that uh, balanced occlusion. So these are really the four things I look at for my restorative. And what, basically before you start the surgery, you wanna have the end results in mind. And this is how you're gonna have the end results in mind by being able to vision that transitional zone, the inner arch space, the occlusion, all of these things you're thinking about before you start your surgery. And do you think if you refer this patient to let's say an oral surgeon to just do the surgery, unless they're really experienced and I don't wanna uh, take any credit from those guys, but most of them, they don't really think about all this because they don't know the restorative part of it. That's why if you do both the surgery and the restorative, you're gonna be so far ahead. Okay, so now let's go through these uh, kind of one at a time. Uh, so when I look at a CT or a, a panel, I don't really draw this red line, but I'm drawing it for you to kind of see what I'm looking at. This is my way of being able to, number one, say if this is a composite defect or is it a tooth only defect? Being able to consider the amount of bone remaining after my required reduction, my zone one, zone two, zone three. I mean, if you look at this, it's K9 to K9. This is my zone one, right? I have plenty of zone one. My zone two goes from here to here, which are the bicuspids. I have pretty decent zone two. Zone three, I have almost none, right? So this helps me, and you'll see how the zone one, zone two, zone three kind of I can picture where my implants are gonna end up. So if I were to put two anterior and then my posterior is tilted, I can see from this picture that the posterior implants are gonna end up at the least at the second bicuspid, right? Because I have enough zone two. And that's ideal. That's pretty much most of the times where you want your posterior. If you, if you can get it further more distal, great. But second bicuspid is kind of like the the dividing factor where you want it. Yes? So it's considered the amount of bone remaining after required reduction. And I understand the required reduction is to meet the 17 approximately millimeters per arch. When you're looking at a pano, how are you, I mean, are you just guesstimating how much reduction you need? To so, do? I mean, some of it is, in this case, it's guesstimate, but if you have a CT scan, yeah. which I can't show you here right now, you do a measurement. What I do is I go from a CT scan, I measure from the incisal edge, all the way to the floor of the nose. I measure that, let's say it's 35, right? If I reduce 20, I still have 15 millimeter red, right? So that's how I look at and that. you're applying that, uh, once you draw that, that line of the incisal edge, you're using that incisal edge. Correct, you can also go back and, and do that same thing there. Obviously you have, I mean, does, is there anyone here that does implant dentistry without the CT scan? I hope not. Okay, so you can obviously, do a lot with a CT scan, which I, I, I'm not showing you here right now. Um, 
And the other thing is, if, you, if you've done enough of this, you'll see even if you reduce all the way to here, only the head of the implant needs to be here because the body is going to go this way. So that, uh, doing enough of these, I already know. I don't even need to measure. I know kind of where my implant's going to fall into. Um, all right, so second one is transitional zone. This is what I was talking about. So this patient has a really high smile line, right? If I do my 17 millimeter measurement, which I take a perioprobe or a bowling gauge in the mouth and I actually have them smile big and then I measure, if you like where that incisal edge is, which probably is, and you do your 17 millimeter, guess where that's gonna end up? Right there, right? So later when you go to restore this, you're gonna have a problem. You either have, you're either going to be showing that uh, transitional zone where the prosthesis and the ridge meet, which is not pretty, that's not gonna look good, or you're gonna have to create a flange that goes above that, and then that's gonna be a hygiene problem. So no matter what, you're gonna have an issue. And I've had a few of these for sure that I'm still dealing with from back when I did it without so much experience. So I'm showing you all the things that you wanna prevent and look for. So in this case, what you wanna do is you wanna take that 17, figure out how many more millimeters you need. You wanna be about three to four millimeters above the smile line where your transitional zone. So I would take that 17, add four to it. So now I need 21 millimeters of reduction. Does that make sense? Okay, good. <clears throat> so you wanna establish your co cosmetic objectives. That's what we're talking about here. So 17 millimeter space needed, but you add as you need to, thinking about the, uh, the, the outcome or the final results. So here's what happens. So here's the ideal prosthesis. You, you want the uh, convex shape where it meets your ridge because that's gonna give it nice and easy hygiene ability. Uh, excuse me. The pores on this thing are going in my mouth. <laughs> um, so that's really ideal. That is not ideal. Concave is not ideal. Why would you get concave? couple reasons. Number one, if your ridge is not flat. Number two, if your transitional zone is not properly calculated, and then you have to create that ridge, now you're going to have patients where food gets stuck in there and it's going to have a hygiene issue. So again, this is very important. It took me a while to really get this. So I'm going to drill it in your head because the, the, there are a few things that I learned by making a lot of mistakes. And I'm gonna make sure you guys don't make those mistakes. All right, so um, third one is obviously the inner arch space. Besides the fact that you need 17 again, you wanna consider the end result. So this patient has a really, really deep bite. Their incisal edge is obviously way lower than where we want them to be, right? So if you count 17 millimeter from here up and you reduce 17 later when you move these te teeth up in the proper position your 17 just changed to 13 right do you see that so again another thing you want to you want to consider ahead of time is where do you want that incisal edge to end up 
that's where you want to calculate your 17 from and not where the existing is. So that's my evaluation of inner arch and transitional zone. They kind of all go in hand to hand. Perfect, very good question. So patient comes to you edentulous. What would you do for that patient if you were to make him a just a set of dentures? What would be your process, right? You would do a bite block, impression, bite block, teeth trying, right? You do a teeth trying to create that denture, right? Once your denture is made in the ideal position that you want aesthetically, then I take that denture and I measure 17 from the incisal edge up and I make that into my guide. Yeah, I'm gonna show you a slide of that too. So, so visualize the end result. That's what it's all about. If you can visualize that end result, you're gonna have really a lot of success in your hands. So here's where that 17 millimeter comes from for me. From where the implant is, you know, you need about three to four millimeters of height on that abutment, multi-unit abutment, whether it's straight, you know, angled, whatnot. You need about three to four millimeters. This should be in your book, by the way, just so you know. Uh, we, we pretty much put everything that's on the lecture in your book. The position of it, positioning of it, maybe, there may be a slide missing, I'm not sure, but if it's, not there, that probably got missed, and I apologize. All right, then take a picture of it. <laughs> I think I added this a little late, later on, and it kind of got missed from the book. But just besides a few slides, maybe, just about everything else should be in your books. Um, so you need about three to four millimeters for your acrylic, and then somewhere between nine to 11 millimeters for your teeth size, right? So when you average this, when you, add the first numbers becomes 15. You add the second numbers becomes 19. So the average is 17. Good? Sure. Uh, Nicole? Oh, could you please? Okay. Yeah, we just need uh, about 18 of those print, uh, printed. All right, very good. So now that makes more sense, right, to, for, for, for the reduction and, and the whole thing. So here's a patient on the left that came to me, edentulous, obviously. He had dentures that he wore them in his pockets, pretty much. He, was, he had a huge gag reflex. Um, I had him on the left slide on the top. I had him give me the biggest smile he could give me. So I look at that, and I see no ridge anywhere. It's like a home run for me. I'm like, yes, I don't really have to do much reduction. Obviously, there are other things that I'm going to take into account, make sure the inner arch space is there and all that. But number one, obviously, this is, he's a, uh, a composite defect, right? He's already lost a lot of bone, a lot of tissue. Number two, his, his um, transitional zone is already above his smile line. So I'm home free there. The only thing I really need to measure is make sure that my inner occlusal space is good and I'm creating his occlusion, so that part I'm good. Make sense? So going back to your, what we did for this patient is we created a whole brand new denture. We went through the process of making an upper lower denture and then from there I measured my 17, 
and used his denture, which you'll see again later, used it as a guide, and it's perfect. Yes? You don't use the denture as the tempering for him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, yeah, so, but we, first you create the actual denture. You create a whole denture. And then on the surgery day, you convert that into a fixed prosthesis, which you'll see all of that. But my point was I use that denture because it's already been tried in and we made sure it's exactly where we wanted. I use the incisal edge on that to figure out my 17 millimeter, make sure I have enough reduction. And so obviously the occlusion, you know, if you have all your teeth, great. That gives us a balanced occlusion. If you only have anterior teeth, uh, you don't want the patient just chomping on those front teeth. A lot of times what we do in our practice is we just throw in a, a flipper or something on the lower if this was the case, just to give the patient some balanced occlusion. Yes? When you say balanced occlusion, what's the difference between that and protective occlusion? Well, protective, I, I, I'm using balanced occlusion as if I don't want the patient just to be biting on one spot. Let's say if they're missing the left, uh, left side of their mouth and they only have teeth on the right side, they're gonna keep, keep chomping on the right side. That, what's that? Bilateral yes, bilateral occlusion. So you want some posterior and some anterior contacts. That, that's what I call balanced occlusion. Am I using the wrong word, Dr. Almasti, saying balanced occlusion just so I can get corrected? Would I, should I use a different word? Okay. All right, so we kind of went over the occlusion. Now, sometimes you also need to consider if the patient is a um, clincher or a grinder, you can obviously determine that ahead of time. And we always make them on the same day or by next day, we make a night guard for the opposing, just to kind of give it some protection too. So that's something that we always do. So if, if, if I notice that a patient is a clincher or a grinder for sure, I make him a night guard for the opposing arch, if I'm doing one arch, for example, just to give it some extra protection. Have you ever made a night guard for the arch restored? For bo both arches, yes. And if I were to do that, I would always make the night guard for the lower, only because upper, obviously, we want less force on that. That's my... Um, way of doing it. I don't know if, doctor, you do it differently. Dr. Almas. I, I do all my uh, you do. I don't think it matters. But so when you look at uh, occlusion, you know, there are times where you can actually correct these. This was such a big transformation. This patient went from looking like this look, to looking like that. Forget the teeth, just their profile and the way he looked. He just looked so different when he woke up and saw himself. Uh, honestly, he, he made all of us cry. He was so excited. And this is not a true, a lot of these cases are not true class three, by the way. This is what I call a pseudo class three, where they come together, they have some kind of interference. Uh, in this case, his front two teeth were hitting, so he would go into a class three to get comfortable to have posterior contact. So these are very easy to fix. I mean, it's just, it's like you do magic, but you really don't have to do much. <laughs> yes? I would assume you'd have to figure out if it's a pseudoclast 3 or a true skeletal class 3. How do you figure before, it out? Yeah, I mean, you have to figure that out before you restore, right? Right. I mean, it's, for me, it's really easy. Uh, you just evaluate the patient. You have them open. 
slowly come together. You see everything is going smoothly. They're not a class three. And then as soon as they come, they boop, they go into that movement. That, that's how easy it is. Um, good. All right. Um, so those were some of the clinical evaluation. You can do the same evaluations pretty much on the x-ray. Uh, we look at the Bedrosian zone, as far as zone one, zone two, zone three. You see how, in this case, you know, I had the imaginary red line in my head. Then I knew that placing the two anterior and the posterior implants, you see how the back of it, I could have even tilted this a little more and get more AP spread, but you get the idea. And then on a CT, you can basically um, uh, mark your vital structure your mental foramen. Uh, you can also uh, measure your inner arch space by looking at the CT, which I can't see here right now, but measurements. You can look at the available bone and um, need for bone reduction. And one thing you want to evaluate as well is a uh, secondary site for implant placement. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be four implants every time. There are cases, a lot of cases, where we put extra implants, whether it's for support. You also want to have that vision that what happens if I get in trouble, meaning that you can't get enough torque on an implant or something happens, where are you going to go? So it's good to evaluate possibly pterygoid implants, which goes way back here. Um, you could also evaluate on a lower, for example, I've done a lot of these. I measure how much bone I have to the mental foramen after my reduction. And if I need to, sometimes I put single implants back here. Um, and you can also support, uh, use that as a kind of an insurance, right? Let's say you have a few implants that didn't torque enough. You put those extra implants as an insurance in case if one does fail, you still have plenty. Which uh, again, a lot of these will go through. but. So that would be my radiographic evaluation at this point for treatment planning. Um, I'm gonna go through some scenarios of what we just talked about as far as how would you treat a patient that has a lot of bone or no bone or so on. So these are some of the scenarios. They are not the only ones. There's so many variations you can create. The beautiful part of this procedure is you have so much room to create whatever you need because you have this full arch and all you have to do is design the implants. It's not like single implant dentistry where you don't really have room for error. You've got to be in the same spot every time or else you might be too close to the tooth or too close to the other implant. In these cases, you have that option. So here's a full bone uh, volume patient that has plenty of zone one, plenty of zone two, plenty of zone three. Do you really, really need to do tilted implants here? Not really. You could if you wanted to, but you have that option of putting six implants, put them straight up and down, make it into a kind of a um, nice, uh, easy case. You still want, obviously, your reductions and so on, but this could be a no-brainer. <clears throat> I call this a full volume one, traditional. Another traditional is full bone volume, but you don't have full zone three. You have zone one and zone two. These cases, you do have to tilt those posterior implants if you don't want to obviously do sinus lift and so on. But the nice thing is this AP spread is great. Your posterior implants can fall into second or first molar to second bicuspid. That's plenty of AP spread. My rule of thumb is 
about one tooth uh, cantilever I'm comfortable with. Uh, so if you have your posterior implants in the first, second bicuspid to first molar, even if you wanted to add, add a second molar, you can do that with no problem. So this is very ideal. On your initial cases when you're starting, this, these are the ones you want to look for. You don't want to jump into the more difficult ones initially. Now, we get into some atrophy cases where you have advanced atrophy case. Uh, your bone level height ends up being you know, shorter to 10 millimeter or so. Uh, and those are the ones that you can actually tilt the anterior implants to get longer length. Right? You can either tilt it uh, distally, or sometimes I will show you, we'll tilt them more to the center to kind of pick up some of that denser bone in the maxilla uh, midline. So this would be another uh, scenario. Here's an atrophy case, which we, you know, we do six implants. Um, your AP spread is a little short. Your posterior implants are gonna fall into the first bicuspid. I am not comfortable with that only because if you're gonna give patient a, you know, up to first molar, now you have two teeth cantilever. So I always have to think of how am I going to uh, be able to create uh, a, a second site to give that patient the right amount of teeth. And pterygoid implant would be great option uh, before initially, before I do pterygoid, I used to place the four anterior implants, do a sinus lift, place those posterior implants, let it heal, and then come back and, uh, and go through the process. But now with the pterygoid and zygomatic, I don't need to do that anymore. Yes? The question is, if they can't afford that extra, those extra implants, can you just go to all right, so that's a good, very good question. He said, what if they can't afford the extra implants? Well, I don't sell implants. I sell a case, right? I don't tell the patient, oh, four implants is this much, six implants is that much. I sell them at $25,000 per arch case. And I will do whatever it takes to make it successful. I think that's the easiest way you can do it. If you want to increase your rate, increase it. And the, a thousand, two thousand per case, so that way it makes up for those. But don't nickel and dime patients. You get kind of. Say what again? Is there a reason why you can't just go to the premolar? Oh no, no, no. There's some cases you may be able to, if they have a tiny arch or a very short smile line. But eighty percent of the cases, when they smile, you need to, you know, have that first molar, especially if you're working on some. Uh, demographics that are in the 40s and 50s, you know, those people want first molars. But there are some cases where we, you know, older patients, little tiny mouths, we've given them up to second bicuspids and that's it. But going back to the question of the charging them, I don't charge per implant, I charge per case, simplify it for you, for your treatment coordinator, for your office manager, for your team and the patient. Don't nickel and dime. That's how you do it, right? I think, yeah. I think that's that's the successful. And, and then you price your case uh, on your CT scan consultation. So when you look at the CT scan, you think that this patient is going to be terribly different. You automatically walk out and tell your patient and coordinator, this is a complex. So we have simple, average, and complex. And that's 
what you uh, price your case. So you know this patient, you're going to need five implants. So this is a medium case. Or complex, this is a 25. So like Dr. Sean said. Yeah. So this way, you know, when you tell your patient, and I bet you tell them the same, I don't want to wake you up in the middle of surgery and say, hey, can I add another implant and charge you after five? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's the last thing. Right. So you like it. And they don't like surprises, and then they will bite the case more. You'll, 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 you'll see high acceptance rate by patient knowing that this is all included. Like, you, they're not going to have to come back later and say, well, I ran out of money. Like, what do I do now? So, like, they know the surprise, they know what they're going to get, and they walk out of the door with that price. In fact, I actually, when I do place extra implants, when I wake the patient up and it's over, I use it as an advantage. I say, guess what? I gave you two extra implants for no charge. And they love it. They're like, oh, thank you so much. I'm like, yeah, now you have six implants instead of four. And it's going to be great. You know, they get excited that you gave them something at no charge. So uh, another scenario here is, uh, again, what I would call all on six here. But we have AP spread issue and height issue. So the previous one was just the AP spread. Now it's a height issue. So you're going to get um, basically try to get the right AP spread from adding extra implants and your front implants can be tilted to get some length as well. And the last but not least, let's say you absolutely only have a zone one. There is no zone two and no zone three available. What do you do? You refer to Dr. Almas. <laughs> 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 but don't do not attempt those initially because you'll get in trouble you get yourself in trouble so but the, the solution is zygomatic implants once you've done plenty of these obviously you can uh, learn from him and, and do the zygomatic but initially um, you want to look for that so if you find a case like this this not should not be your first or second case doing it because you will end up having failure and then you'll you know it becomes a bad taste in your mouth, and then you're gonna end up not wanting to do these cases, right? So I want you to, I wanna set you up for success. Um, you're always welcome to email or text me your first few cases, and I can look at the CT or the X-ray, whatever, and then give you some pointers from there. So these are some of the uh, surgical considerations to be able to figure out, uh, what time is it? Do you guys want to take a few minute break and then well, go ahead, let me answer your question. I was just asking how often are you performing these surgeries guided? Good, very good question. So I get asked this all the time to why don't we learn this guided? Why can't we do this guided? You absolutely can, and at some point you absolutely should. Do I do them guided? Very few here and there, because I've done so many of them. The guide actually slows me down. Uh, but my goal here, the reason we don't talk about guided is not that I don't want you to learn. I want you to learn how to do it without guide. So when you do get into guide and once in a while that guide is not gonna be where you want it or it becomes complicated, you can take the guide out and finish the procedure. It's kind of like, uh, you know, my daughter was just getting her license not long ago and did I wanna give a Tesla to her that she doesn't really need to learn how to parallel park and it can do all of it for her? Absolutely not. I am not gonna do that. Would you? 
No, you want your daughter to learn how to parallel park and do all that without having the technology. And then later, great, if she can do both, wonderful. It's the same principle, if that makes sense. The reason I don't do guided is because I'm traveling between four offices. 80, 85% of times I go into surgery and I've just met the patient five minutes ago. So I had no idea who this, and so there's a lot of uh, moving parts. And so I, I'm just personally, I've done enough of them to where I'm comfortable without a guide. I can look at those x-rays and what we just went over and within five minutes, I have a guide in my head already. And you'll get there too, but I want you to learn. And this, and I keep it really simplified. You'll see once we go through surgery, there's no fancy material or fancy um, equipment. All you need is an x-ray, a blade, and a number two pencil, pretty much. <laughs> so you'll see it in the surgery. It helps you to angulate. It's really easy You use it right there in the arch. And after you do that a few times, then you throw that away. But it so, just helps you get used to it because you know, you're so used to trying to be you know, upright. Or yes, it will help you with the angulation. Be used to, and it's going towards you. Yeah. Like you're bringing it back up towards you. This so, yes, we'll, we'll, you'll see that for sure. So do we want to take a quick break and come back, or do we want to keep going and take a break later? Up to you guys. Anybody? Let's, Use, take, a let's take a break. Yes, let's do that. That way I... Whew. Yeah, music. How's it going back there? We're, we're good, Dr. Sean. I'm going to move this to this side so when you refer to the...